I wanted to share several ideas about maybe one of the most bizarre Jewish customs and Jewish mitzvos that we do every Purim. Purim, of course, is an amazing festival. It's such a joyous day. We read the Megillah. We remember all the miracles that the Amai did for us. We give gifts to our neighbors. We give gifts to the poor. But there's one part of the holiday, there's one element of the day, which is very strange. It's a very bizarre mitzvah. Some people, I'm sure it's their favorite mitzvah of the year. But it doesn't seem to be like a very Jewish mitzvah. And that is, the Talmud tells us, and this is quoted by the halacha, that on Purim, we're supposed to drink. Well, how much must we drink? We're supposed to get drunk to the degree that we cannot differentiate between the hero of the Megillah, the hero of the Purim story, namely Mordechai, and the villain, the arch-villain of the story, Haman. Chayv Inish Lipsumi says the Talmud, a person is mandated, is required to drink on Purim to the degree that they don't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai and accursed is Haman. In fact, the Talmud brings a story to illustrate this. It tells of two of the greatest rabbis of our history, two of the authors of the sages that wrote the Talmud, that they were celebrating Purim together, and they got drunk, and they were so plastered, they were so not with it, that one of them slaughtered the other one. Come, Rabbah, one of the great sages of the Talmud, he got up and he slaughtered his friend, his study partner, his colleague, he slaughtered Rav Zera. The next day, of course, he sobers up. And he's trying to find his friend. And the people tell him, well, your friend is gone. You killed him. And the Talmud goes on to say how he prayed and his friend was resuscitated. Very strange story to illustrate this mitzvah that you're supposed to drink on Purim. How much? So much to the degree that you act crazy. You totally don't have control over your behavior. And you don't even know the difference between Mordechai and Haman. In fact, the commentaries talk all about the story. They raise a very interesting question. Rav Zera, he's the one who was slaughtered, and then the next day he's resuscitated. Well, what happens to his wife in the interim? He was married, presumably, and once a woman's husband dies, well, then she can marry whomever she wants. The next day, the same husband is resuscitated. Is she a married woman? Does she need to remarry her husband? That's an interesting question the commentaries talk about. The commentaries also talk about, well, how exactly did he kill him? Did he kill him with a weapon? Did he kill him with some sort of spiritual weapon? Like the commentaries talk about maybe he took his soul via Torah, whatever that means. But regardless, the whole year, we strive to be a very cerebral people. When we study Torah, we try to connect to the will of God on a very logical level. We're always trying to be rational. We're trying to understand things with our intellect. And apparently on Purim, that's all thrown away. And even the most basic takeaway of the story that Mordechai is blessed and Haman is cursed, even that becomes muddled, even that we don't see clearly and we perhaps conflate the two. What is the meaning behind this idea that we are forgetting Haman's role in the story? He's the villain after all. Why are we whitewashing the evilness of Haman and why are we confusing him with the righteousness 
of Mordechai. Now, it's also important to remember that Haman is not just an isolated individual, an enemy of the Jewish people. He is the heir to Amalek. Amalek is the arch nemesis, the anti-Jewish nation, and Haman is the archetype. He is the heir. He inherited the virulent anti-Semitism of Amalek. And Amalek is the first nation to wage war with the Jewish people. The Jewish people, they leave Egypt, they're on top of the world, and not a single nation stands before them, with the exception of Amalek. There's one nation that can never accept the triumph of the Jewish people, and so long as Amalek is still around, our national mission has not yet been completed. So Haman is not just an individual, he's someone who represents a tradition that our national mission is to stamp out. And somehow on Purim, we're forgetting about his evil. So what's the insight behind this? I want to share several interconnected ideas. If you look at the story of Purim, the story of the Megillah, the story of the danger, the threat that was facing the Jewish people, and you start off with chapter 1 and you have this banquet, Ahasuerus is celebrating, he has this 108-day festival, And the Jewish people, sadly, partake in the revelry. And the Talmud tells us that as a result, they were threatened with genocide. And the story begins that Ahasuerosh is trying to impress the partygoers at his party, and he wants to showcase his wife, Vashti. She refuses to show up, and she is put down. And chapter 2, Ahasuerosh is looking for a replacement queen, a replacement for Queen Vashti. And they gather all the girls from the land. And the woman that's ultimately selected is Esther, the heroine of the story. And the Talmud tells us that she was related to Mordechai, the hero of the story. He didn't just adopt her as a daughter, so to speak, after her parents passed. He actually married her. So if you look at this part of the story, you think about it. You know, we have a Jewish woman a very impressive Jewish woman, as we see. And she's married to the figurehead, to the titular head of the Jewish people, to Mordechai, the greatest Jew in the land, and the hero of the story. And this woman, Esther, is kidnapped, and is taken hostage, and is taken to the king's palace. And that's only the beginning of the downfall, so to speak, of Esther, it's a terrible tragedy. Any Jewish girl, any Jewish woman is taken captive, taken away from her husband, and taken by a foreign ruler, but she is actually made queen. Her defilement is cemented by this union with Ahasuerus. And if you think about this part of the story, it's like a, it's a terrible tragedy. And that's not where the tragedy ends, of course, You go to chapter 3, and we meet Haman, and Haman is telling all the people of the land, you have to bow down to me. Mordechai refuses to bow down, and Haman says, I'm going to get back at him, not just at him as an individual, but his entire nation. And he convinces Ahasuerus to sign off on this decree that all the Jewish people are fair game, they could all be massacred. And of course, that's a terrible tragedy. That's the second tragedy of the story wherein the Jewish nation is suddenly vulnerable to be entirely destroyed. And then, fast forward towards chapter 5, we have Esther inviting Ahasuerus and Haman to this party. And after party 1, after banquet 1, 
Haman witnesses Mordechai again not bowing down to him. At this juncture of the story, the decree that the Jewish people are going to be massacred on the 13th day of Adar is already in place. But Haman is impatient. Haman doesn't want to wait the several months until he can finally put Mordechai down. So he builds this gargantuan gallows in his backyard, 50 cubits high, towering above the entire city, and he's going to hang Mordechai pronto. And he goes and he builds the gallows, and he goes to try to lobby Achashverosh to sign off on that warrant. And of course, it doesn't exactly work out as planned. But this, again, is a third tragedy in the story. We have this gallows that was built, that was erected to hang Mordechai, the greatest Jew of the land. And once you turn the corner, once we start the second half of the book, and Achashverosh is having a hard time sleeping, and at that time, Haman comes and makes the request, with the intention of making the request to be allowed to hang Mordechai, and of course, Achashverosh interrupts him, and he has to go take Mordechai on the triumphant march throughout the city, but everything really changes. And all the tragedies in the first half of the book are resolved in a beautiful way in the second half of the book. And of course, the book itself describes the festival of Purim as Vinahapachu, everything turning on its head, everything being the exact opposite of what we thought. We have three decrees. We have Esther being kidnapped. Terrible tragedy. We have the decree mandating that the entire Jewish nation is going to be executed. And of course, we have the gallows that was erected for Mordechai. And once the story is over, what do we discover? Those same gallows intended for Mordechai, well, that's actually going to be used to hang Haman, the chief Nazi, the chief enemy of the Jewish people. And then we read that the decree that Achashverosh initially signed off to go kill all the Jews, that was actually not rescinded. If you look at chapter 8 of the book of Esther, you'll notice that Achashverosh says, I cannot rescind it, but I can overrule it with a second decree. And that's the decree that on that same day, when the Jewish people were sitting ducks, According to the first decree, the one that Haman inspired, that's the same day that they are given free license to go kill their enemies. And indeed they do. On the 13th day of Adar, in the land, in the city of Shushan, they kill 500 of their enemies. And the following day they kill 300 of the enemies. And throughout all 127 countries of the kingdom, of the empire, the Persian empire, the empire of Ahasuerus, they kill 75,000 enemies of the Jewish people. All the people that were plotting to attack and to plunder the Jewish people, they expose themselves in the months preceding that decree. And therefore, all the Jews knew exactly who their enemies were. And on the same day where they were initially supposed to be massacred, they were able to kill all the anti-Semites. They were able to kill all the Nazis. And it turns out that the decree of Haman that was so evil, that was so terrifying, that was so scary initially, all the Jews are going to be massacred. They have absolutely no protection from the police. Achashverosh himself, with the irrevocable signet, signs off on this decree. It turns out that how did it result in the story? It resulted in all the enemies 
of the Jews being killed. And finally, we have the tragedy of Esther being kidnapped. According to one opinion, at least in the Talmud, Esther is, of course, the wife, the queen of Ahasuerus, and she is the mother of the heir to the throne, namely Darius, Dariavish. According to one opinion, Esther is the mother of Darius, the king of Persia. In fact, by Jewish law, we would say that Darius was Jewish. And who signed off on the Jewish people building the second temple? That was none other than Darius. So it turns out that Esther being taken by Achshverosh, being forcibly extracted from her family, brought into the foreign kingdom, the foreign palace of Achshverosh, that was a plot to allow the Jewish people to build the second temple. One of the major themes of the book of Esther and the story of Purim is that we have no idea what's actually good for us. Everything that we are bemoaning, everything that terrified us in the first half of the story, was actually, once the story is fully told, that was all for us. That caused the redemption. That caused the improvement of the Jewish people. We thought, well, we lost Esther, we lost Mordechai, the nation is going to be destroyed. It turns out we got the license to put down Haman and all his co-conspirators. And indeed, we got the third temple being rebuilt. One of the ideas of Purim is that the Almighty is always on our side. Everything that he's doing, all of his interventions in history, even when they may appear to be, in our eyes, terrible tragedies, things that are going to spell the demise of the Jewish people, once everything is said and done, we're going to discover that it was actually all for us. The verse tells us, Then our face will be filled with laughter. This is a reference to the Messianic era. This is a reference to the future time when we're given a peek behind the curtain and we're able to see how everything that happened to us in our history was actually for our benefit. Today, when we look at the world, we have a very thin sliver through which we can see the world. And we try to make assessments, and we try to understand what's happening, and we see a lot of bad things happening to the Jewish people. And therefore, it's hard to be very positive when looking back at a retrospective of Jewish history, and even when looking forward. There are a lot of threats facing us. There's a lot of dangers that are looming overhead. Yet in the future... There's going to be laughter. Laughter is when what we anticipate is proven to be the exact opposite of what we discover. In the future, the Almighty is going to reveal to us how everything was for us. And we have a little image of that. We have a template of that in the book of Esther. All the tragedies, all the suffering that we read about in the first half of the book, at the end of the book, we discover That's really all for our benefit. What do we do on Purim? We take the wine, we take the whiskey, we take the alcohol, and we alter our mind. We allow our intellect to succumb. And we say, Haman, we thought you were the villain. 
we thought everything that you brought with you was a harbinger of evil. And we thought Mordechai, he's the only force of good. On Purim, we discovered that it's really the Almighty who's the grand puppeteer who is manipulating and intervening and pushing the buttons in history. And there really is no difference between the work of Mordechai to improve, to benefit the Jewish people, and the work of the most evil Amalekite that exists, Haman, his work, it turns out, is also the handiwork of God once it is all said and done. And this is a lesson not just for the Purim story, this is a lesson for us in our lives. Each one of us, of course, in our own personal lives, we have challenges. There are parts of our lives that are very difficult. We suffer. We have pain. Not everything goes smoothly. And that's, of course, for us as individuals. And for the Jewish nation, we can make a list that's a very long list of the difficulties facing the Jewish nation, of the challenges, of the suffering, of the pain that our nation has and continually has to endure. And it's hard for us to see how the Almighty is really in our corner, how the Almighty is on our side. And on Purim, we're trained to celebrate not only the good things, not only the blessed is Mordechai, but also the accursed is Haman. All the difficulties in our life, we believe, the Almighty is really orchestrated for our benefit. But how can we see the benefit in the bad? How can we look at the tragedies in our lives and celebrate? The only way to do that is by taking a drink. There's a custom, in fact, for people to make a list of every difficulty, every challenge, every area of the life where they're suffering, as individuals and as part of the Jewish nation, make a list, and to each one of them, drink a shot, make a l'chaim, and celebrate the Almighty doing something good for you, even though you cannot see it. Celebrate the accursed is Haman, because really, ultimately, with the Almighty in charge, he's always on our team, and he's always going to intervene for our benefit. I want to add another point to try to understand the goodness, so to speak, inherent in Amalek, inherent in Haman. There is a Kabbalistic concept called klipa, or klipot. The word klipa means a peel, like you have a fruit, and the fruit is covered with a klipa, with a peel. And the general idea is that the world is replete with all kinds of wonderful fruits. But each fruit is covered, is protected by a peel so that it doesn't get damaged, it doesn't get dirty, and we can only truly enjoy the fruit after we peel off, after we remove the peel. And that, of course, is not only in the physical lives, but in spiritually. There's a concept, again, a very Kabbalistic concept, that the spiritual fruits that we're here to enjoy, we can only enjoy them after we remove the klipa, after we remove the peel. So, for example, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, he used to say that a question is, in effect, a klipa, it's a peel, and you have to go through the peel to get to the answer to get to the fruit. And that is the challenge for us to try to enjoy or try to tap into our spiritual power is that we have to first navigate, we have to first bypass, we have to first encounter 
the klipa, the peel that is covering, that is protecting the spiritual bounty, the spiritual fruit. And there's a very deep idea inherent in this. To the degree of the greatness of the fruit, so to speak, is the greatness, is the thickness of the klipa of the peel. Meaning that if someone has an area where they are preternaturally challenged, it's an area where they constantly stumble, they constantly sin, they constantly make mistakes in the same area. So, of course, naturally, you're bound to get depressed, you're bound to get sad, you're bound to feel helpless that this is the one area that you can conquer. This is the area where you're not good at it. And in fact, the opposite is true. The Yetzahara, the Klipa, the evil inclination is only going to attack you, so to speak, in the area where you have power. Where you have the greatest fruit, that's where you have the greatest cover, the greatest concealment, the greatest buffer, the greatest peel that you need to remove in order to access the greatness that you have within you. And that applies also on a national level. What happened when the Jewish people left Egypt? Every nation melted away before them. But there was one nation, one klipa, that was not at all impressed. And that, of course, is Amalek. Amalek is the one that was jumping into the hot, piping, boiling bathtub, so to speak, in the words of Rashi, in the words of the Midrash, they were unafraid, they had total temerity to be able to start up the Jewish people at the peak of their powers. And the insight that the Kabbalists explained to us is that the Almighty is intervening in the war of Amalek. The Almighty is telling us, you have to destroy Amalek, because this is the area that represents our greatest strengths. And of course, this is a very counterintuitive idea. It's only because we have great power. We have great latent potential. We have the most luscious fruit, the most robust spiritual destiny ahead of us. It's only because of that, only because we're so spiritually capable and advanced, that's the only reason why we have this enemy, so to speak, this klipa, this seemingly indefatigable, unconquerable enemy, the Amalekites, that are preventing us, that are that last hump that we need to overcome before we achieve our destiny. What do we do on Purim? On Purim, we celebrate our enemies. We forget about the accursed nature of Haman because we recognize that that, in effect, is the greatest testimony of the great potential that we have. And even if you look at the story... What do we have? We have Haman doing something very drastic, taking a step to try to eradicate the Jewish people. The Talmud tells us that when Ahasuerus removed his ring and gave all of his powers, handed off all his powers to Haman, that brought the Jewish people to repentance more than the 48 prophets that we've had in our nation. And we discover that Haman is really there not to destroy us, but to bring out the best in us. The, the peel, the peel's there to 
allow us and to coach us and to encourage us and to be the impetus that we access the fruits that it is concealing. I think that's a very powerful idea to remember with us throughout this powerful day. We have challenges in our life. We have difficulties in our life. The Jewish people are suffering. We meet Haman. Haman's a terrible enemy. And what do we do on Purim? On Purim, we recognize, A, the Almighty doesn't do anything that is to our detriment. Anything that he does is to our benefit. And even Haman is a force, is a tool in the hand of God to put us in a better place, to bring us to a better destiny. And on a more direct level, the whole idea of having great foes, the great foes is, in fact, evidence and proof that there is a great future awaiting us. And we have to recognize that to the degree that we face unprecedented challenges, difficulties from our own personal Yetzirah, from our own personal Kipot and national Kipot, that is an indication of what we have potentially to achieve in our lives, provided that we make the right decisions. So let's make that list. Make a list of all the things that are difficult in our lives, all the areas that we blunder, and drink. It's hard for us to celebrate Haman. The only way we could do that is when we surrender our mind, or surrender our intellect, and recognize that the Almighty has a plan for us. As an individual, we have a great future, we have a great destiny, and of course, the future of the Jewish people is extraordinarily bright. Chag Sameach to all. Thank you for listening. Have a happy Purim, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.